Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. Hey, we're glad you're with us here on the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. He's Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. Quick apology for yesterday's podcast not getting published in the correct fashion. It's functioning now, so go back and listen to it, and you'll get six martinis for the price of three today. Although if you paid for three yesterday, I guess you're even. Jim, good to be back with you. Let's talk about our good martini, and it's good because something is being done to call attention to something that was very bad a while ago, specifically 1996, the Atlanta Olympics. We now know it was Eric Rudolph who set the bomb in Centennial Olympic Park. But it wasn't Eric Rudolph that the federal authorities and the local authorities and the media thought was responsible for it. No! No, they went after the guy who actually saved tons of lives. When we got the warning that the bomb was about to go off in the park, that would be Richard Jewell. And now Clint Eastwood, now pushing 90 years old, is out with his uh, newest film. And uh, we have the trailer. And here's a little bit of it just to remind folks who don't remember the summer of 1996 real well exactly what was going on with this story. Let's get a new tape going. All right, Richard, here's what we're going to do. We need a voice exemplar. I want you to say into this phone, there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. Richard, you're a national hero now. Thank you, sir. But I was just doing my job. You've always looked at the guy who found the bomb just like you've always looked at the guy who found the body. Jewel fits the profile of the lone bomber. A frustrated white man who is a police wannabe who seeks to become a hero. We're running it. You're a suspect. You don't talk. I talk. Say it. I don't talk. This might be the only way to clear your name. I want you to say there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. Stop trying to be their best friend. I was raised to respect authority. Authorities are looking to eat you alive. There's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. I'm sorry, what? His accusers are two of the most powerful forces in the world. The United States government and the media. So, Jim, we're not doing marketing here for Clint Eastwood's new movie, but uh, it does bring back a very chilling time in this country. And it also is a reminder because you and I have talked in the past, we've talked ad nauseum about the media jumping the gun on a whole variety of stories, political and otherwise. And we've also expressed our frustrations about the FBI dropping the ball many different times. Boston Marathon bomber being tipped off on that, doing very little about it. Uh, Looking at the Orlando nightclub shooter a number of times and deciding there was nothing to be done there, even after being tipped off by Disney. That's why we had to create Disney CTU. And even this guy that that, that shot up the Midland-Odessa area had called the FBI repeatedly and apparently wasn't worth any further scrutiny. So the frustrating part is that things don't seem to have gotten a whole lot better with either of these entities. The good news is, and that's why it's the good martini, is that Clint Eastwood is calling attention to it. Yeah, and this is a story that deserves uh, greater attention that probably shouldn't have been as quickly forgotten as it was. Uh, Greg, I will never forget it in part because uh, my college roommate and good friend at the time, and still my good friend, we went down to the Olympics and I actually walked through Centennial Park probably about 12 hours before the bomb went off. And it was, you know, obviously a supremely tense time. I believe one person was killed in the explosion. One person was a foreign uh, news cameraman who was running to cover it and either had a heart attack or some issue and uh, ended up dying because of that. Other people injured. And within like two or three days, 
Richard Jewell was the name that was on the cover. I believe NBC News was one of the big institutions pushing for it. And I want to say it was either the either USA Today or Atlanta Journal-Constitution, one of those big institutions. Um, and yeah, you know, was it was it a you know, potential potentially plausible theory? Sure. Did law enforcement need to rule them out? Sure. Um, but you know, we talk about we complain about the media a lot uh, on this podcast. It often deserves it. But here's an example where really you want to talk about destroying a guy's reputation. I believe he sued. I think he won a ton from two of the uh, uh, big media institutions about this. And also, I remember something that, you know, just to be the honor wrinkles of this. At one point, he did a cameo on Saturday Night Live. This was back when Norm MacDonald was uh, behind the anchor desk. And it was kind of played as a joke. And it was, and he, he was, you know, likable, amiable enough. I always kind of wonder if that was somehow part of NBC's settlement. Uh, oh, by the way, we're going to pay you lots of million dollars. And hey, you want to do Saturday Night Live? And we can make fun of how much we botched this story. But it just kind of seems like kind of this almost Kafka-esque story of a you know man who did nothing wrong and who in fact tried to do the right thing in a in a moment of crisis, and who was unfairly uh, uh, scapegoated for for this type of the ultimate nightmare scenario. Uh, it was quite some time before his name was cleared. So now after it happened and after it came out clear and the evidence started pointing in the direction of uh, Eric Rudolph, who they ended up catching years later, you know this sort of thing. You know, wow, you know, boy, it really did jump to gun. The pressure to be first with the story really did sacrifice getting it right. The media did play a role in, in absolutely smearing this man's reputation. Disc, disc. And then the news media went back on. And we never really seemed to see the, wow, we, we completely messed that up. We need to reevaluate this. We need to, you know, uh, change our practices, change our standards, change our philosophy of what we consider journalism to be. And it never happens. Um, so if nothing else, this will be kind of a good reminder of the fact that this did not happen. This did not start with the Trump era did not start with the Bush era. This has been a gradually worsening problem for probably a generation now. And this was kind of a clear early indicator of what was coming down the pike and probably not taken as seriously as it needed to be at the time, Greg. Well, speaking of people who can't get their story straight, let's talk about Adam Schiff a little bit, because he, of course, is the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Nancy Pelosi's point man on impeachment. Uh, but Jim, he's had egg on his face in a number of different ways already, and we're barely a week into this uh, whole impeachment process. First, of, co- of course, was the concocted uh, paraphrasing, we can't even really use that word, uh, fabrication, let's say, of the transcript of the Ukraine call between the president and President Zelensky of Ukraine, grossly exaggerating or in some cases making up what was the contents of that call, suggesting that Trump asked Zelensky to make up dirt on Joe Biden, which is certainly not in the the memo that has been released. Now we found out, actually courtesy of the New York Times, so while we bash the liberal media, they do deserve some credit for this, uh, New York Times revealing that Adam Schiff and his office actually were aware of the whistleblower and the complaint prior to it going public. Schiff had previously said that that was not the case. Now Schiff and his office trying to do the damage control by saying, look, all we said was you need to get a lawyer and uh, make sure you file this the proper way. Now, it turns out that there was collaboration with the uh, whistleblower and uh, Schiff's office here. So even the explanation after getting busted doesn't seem to be holding up. Ed Morrissey writing about this over at Hot Air, uh, talking about how it's more than, than Schiff is willing to admit in terms of collaboration here. So where does this leave us? Yeah, so if you, I, I was over with this morning in the jolt. If you're Nancy Pelosi, and we know that she had wanted to, uh, she had been reluctant to pursue impeachment because she thought it was going to hurt Democrats' chances for uh, defeating Trump in 2020. It was all, it's been pretty clear throughout this process that, uh, 
that uh, it was not likely to get 67 votes in the Senate. Kind of wonder what the relationship between Pelosi and Schiff is these days, because ever since the Ukraine uh, deal, the Ukraine conversation, brouhaha, however you want to characterize it, ever since it came forward, there was kind of this sense of, the, okay, well, this is Schiff's moment in the spotlight. And Schiff was kind of damaged goods after he'd hyped the Russiagate investigation so much. And it had not, you know, the Mueller report ended up not delivering the goods. Um Strike one was the uh, fabricated transcript or the exaggerated, you know, shifts. Par- like, like we still kind of like, what was? Why was he doing that? What did he think he was going to get out of doing that? That you know, the the readout on that conversation was bad enough for the president. Why are you making Trump sound like a Tony Soprano ca- character by putting words in his mouth? You gave Trump a stick to hit him with, and Trump has been whacking away furiously at Schiff. Uh, ever since I was saying that he should be resigned, they should be prosecuted for treason, and he should be executed. Okay, all right, Mr. President, back back it down a little bit. You know, turn, turn it down from eleven. Nonetheless, Schiff shouldn't have done this. Now we have this second case in which Schiff was up on MSNBC and he said, "Yes, we have not had conversations with the whistleblower." Well, it all depends on how broadly or narrowly we define the word "we," isn't it? Um, you know, the, I, I tried to go through it in today's jolt, and in the the you know, New York Times did its best to try to explain this the proper procedure for a whistleblower to report something like this. And it sounds like he went to the CIA's general counsel. The CIA's general counsel went to the Department of Justice and the White House National Security Council. They had to go to that stuff. He originally did it anonymously. Uh, then when that didn't seem to go somewhere, the whistleblower, he felt like he wasn't getting results. Then he went to Schiff's office, the House Intelligence Committee, which is chaired by Schiff. Staffers talked to this guy. They say Schiff himself did not directly talk about it. Schiff said he did not know specifically what was in this complaint. And I think we can all kind of wonder, well, okay, how specifically, you know, what was, uh, how, how much, you know, wiggle room is there in that word? Um, and then he went to the CIA inspector general and that's how the ball got rolling on the second process. You know, again, Schiff, if you'd had conversation, if, if your staff talked to this guy, you should not say we have not had conversations with this guy. That's strike two. Is there a strike three coming? Who knows? Time will tell. But I think if you're Pelosi, you're probably undermined by the fact that, you know, by like for, for perspective, Greg, he's making Jerry Nadler look organized and professional <laughs> and honest. Well, that maybe uh, answers my next question here, because if there is a strike three coming and given that there's been two strikes in a very short period of time here, I don't think it's uh, too outlandish to assume that that's going to happen. Pelosi's all in at this point. She's basically sent the, the bowling ball down the alley here. It's not coming back. And so do you hand it over to uh, Nadler, who you already had zero confidence in? Do you stick with Schiff, even though he's like a pitcher who does not have his stuff and is getting shelled all over the place? Uh, do you quietly back away? What do you do? So articles of impeachment would have to go through the House Judiciary Committee to start. That's right. And that's why he was, the, you know, Pelosi's order to everybody was turn everything in to Nadler. Let's get all, roll all, anything you got, wrap them up and hand them along because we got to get rolling on this. Well, obviously, there were lots of other committees that were still looking at things like the Movements Clause and all of this other stuff, these terrible, perfidious crimes by Trump. And they're like, whoa, whoa we're not done yet. You know, of course, they've still been litigating all kinds of questions of what, you know, what's covered by executive privilege and what isn't and subpoenas and can we get Trump's tax returns and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I'm sure the other committee chairs were not um, encouraged by that. But, you know, as I wrote a little bit earlier this week, Greg, Democrats can do this simple and quick, or they can do it comprehensive and slow. 
but you can't do, you can't do both. And it's going to be very tough to kind of hit that happy medium um, because I don't think this gets to 67 votes. If you think this is not going to, you know, if, if your goal is to take out Trump, get it over with, rip the Band-Aid off, get this done as quickly as possible because you want this as far away in the rearview mirror as possible when voters go to vote in 2020 because you want to emphasize that if you're not happy with Trump's presidency, the only way to end the presidency is at the ballot box. You can't count on the impeachment process. You're not going to magically find 20 Republican senators who are going to vote to impeach this guy. But, uh, you know, I don't know if they're going to see that way. I think there are a whole bunch of, you know, other committee chairs aren't going to want to do this. And I think I think it's also very clear Schiff likes being in the spotlight, even though he's not good at it. <laughs> and the interesting question would be, is there anybody in the Democratic firmament who is prominent enough and respected enough to pull Adam Schiff and say, uh, look, buddy, I know you wanted to pitch your way out of this one, but uh, you've just given up two home runs. So <laughs> I'm sending you to the showers and I'm bringing in the relief pitcher here. Since, you know, baseball playoffs started, I figure I should go with that matter. But, Jim, as we go to our crazy martini here, um, the transcript kind of feels like old news now, especially after today, uh, because the big issue from the transcript is whether the president was pushing the Ukrainians to open the investigation. And people were saying, ooh, there's an ellipsis here. What got left out of this uh, memorandum that's not a complete verbatim transcript of the phone call? I wonder what happened there. Well, uh, President Trump, uh, this wasn't a phone call. It's on the South Lawn. Headed to the chopper, blades already firing, uh, talking about Ukraine, and now another country that should investigate the Bidens. Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Bidens. It's a very simple answer. Uh, They should investigate the Bidens, because how does a company that's newly formed and all these companies, if you look at, and by the way, likewise, China should start an investigation into the Bidens. Because what happened in China is just about as bad as what happened with, uh, with Ukraine. So I would say that President Zelensky, if it were me, I would recommend that they start an investigation into the Bidens. Because nobody has any doubt that they weren't crooked. That was a crooked deal, 100%. So, Jim, I guess the one thing he's got going for him is that Zelensky never did start the investigation or anybody else in the Ukraine. Uh, so the, the quid and the, the quo and the pro and uh, not, you know, nothing ever actually was forced to happen in the Ukraine. So that might be Trump's best defense at this point. But uh, what do you make of him uh, staying on this full throttle? Yeah, I mean, something I, I wrote today, and I think really probably just should get more discussion. Like, you know, you hear a lot of people like, well, you know, Trump, uh, Trump and Giuliani were pressuring the Ukraine government to investigate Joe Biden. Actually, well, wait a second. The previous uh, Ukrainian prime minister, Petro Poroshenko, and I want to point out every time I see that name, I'm thinking of Pomodoro, which is Italian food. <laughs> uh, but so Konstantin Kulik, and I'm probably mispronouncing the words, deputy for Mr. Lutsenko, who was the state prosecutor who was handling the cases before being reassigned last month, this would have been April of 2019, told the New York Times that he was scrutinizing millions of dollars from Burisma to the firm that paid Hunter Biden. So they were investigating this at one point, and then they stopped. Now the question is, you know, did they stop out of some sort of nefarious reasoning, or did they begin looking into it, and everything seemed to be on the up and up, and, you know, no crimes had been committed, and so they dropped the investigation or put it aside. That happens all the time. Um, or, you know, with some there. So Trump and Giuliani want them to reopen the investigation, not to start the investigation. I think that's kind of a, uh, a legit, uh, an important distinction to make here. Um, that, that at one point, somebody thought there was something worth looking at there. 
when it was dropped, maybe it was because other other issues overtook it in terms of priorities, or maybe somebody wanted something nefarious, or maybe there just wasn't any evidence. And if the explanation from the prosecutors is, hey, you know what, we did look at this, there wasn't any evidence of crimes committed, uh, then that's fine. You know what, what we you know what we've talked about all week is this idea that Hunter Biden, um, yeah, you're probably underqualified. Yeah, he's probably overpaid. And certainly he created the impression that Burisma Holdings was well-connected with the Obama administration, whether or not there actually was any quid pro quo or any indication that the Obama administration was changing policy in an effort to help out Burisma Holdings. So it's possible, you know, Hunter Biden, something of a figurehead, something to, you know, reassure investors or something like that. Or maybe there was something much more nefarious going on there. We don't know. And it's one of the reasons where I think it's kind of reasonable for Trump to want people to investigate in this. But I think we've underestimated uh, Trump, Greg, because people are thinking, God, how, you know, everybody's going to be obsessed about this. How do you get people to stop talking about allegations that Trump wanted the Ukrainians to start digging into Hunter Biden again? And the way you do it is you explicitly call on China to start <laughs> investigating Hunter <laughs> Biden. Well, no one's talking about Ukraine anymore. Um, now, look, some of what we're seeing here at his insistence, there had to be a dirty deal. And if that deal was crooked, or look, Hunter Biden is indeed a private citizen. There's no law that says he can't form an investment firm with his two buddies. Does it look a little funny if large state investors in China start dumping a lot of money into this? Sure. But, you know, the game, the, the objective here is, OK, so what can you see that they purchased with that? Um, in terms of uh, positive relations with the Obama administration or uh, changing in the position of Joe Biden or something, you know, they're, they're, you got to tie it to something, right? You can't just say, oh, hiring Hunter Biden is ipso facto a crime. Um, now, Trump's way of difference between true and false and his difference between legitimate and illegitimate is, is this good for me, right? Everything investigating him, well, that's a sham. That's a witch hunt. That's travesty. It's totally wrong. If somebody's, if you're investigating one of his rivals, then of course, and in court, you know, it, it's it's a huge scandal, and it's an outrage, and it's a crime, and it, you know, you know, so naturally, he's, you know, if if there's something funny, you know, if Hunter Biden was working with the Chinese, of course, it's got to be a crime in there somewhere, and China should investigate it. Now, let's think through what, what Trump is calling for here, Greg. He wants the Chinese government to investigate whether their own institutional investors—these are people who run the the Social Security fund and the the state funds and stuff like that whether one part of the Chinese government should investigate if another part of the Chinese government did something wrong or illegal with Hunter Biden. Yeah, I'm sure they'll get right on that. Even if they did, why would the Chinese government ever admit it? Why? So they can help keep President trade war in place? Jim, before we go, I do want you to explain to everyone your tweet this morning, because I thought it was very, very interesting. It's kind of the dilemma that the Democrats have about Joe Biden, regardless of where the, the, the Trump situation goes. Sure. Yeah. So Trump is doing his uh, kind of impromptu press conference or answering questions of the White House uh, on the South Lawn. And he goes, I think Biden is going down. And he calls and he says, you know, uh, calls on Ukraine and China to investigate as people just heard the audio there. They scammed Ukraine. So we've seen a little bit of a dip in Biden's numbers. Uh, Not a ton, a little bit here and there. And Warren seems to be gaining momentum. There are a couple of polls out there that are starting to put Warren ahead. So here's the thing for Democratic primary voters. They may have a whole bunch of different reasons to be a little bit wary of putting all their eggs in the Joe Biden basket, so to speak. Not just the bleeding eyes, not just the age, uh, all the other issues, uh, you know, that, that you might be looking, wanting to look at other options for, for other reasons. 
But if they jump off the Biden bandwagon now, it looks like Trump had a point and there was a legitimate ethics problems there for that should worry Democrats. And I think if you look at the Hunter Biden timeline that I put together at the beginning of the week, yeah, I think there is a, a real issue there. So, but they, obviously Democrats don't want to say Trump's got a point. So maybe they say, oh, no, 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 we're going to stay on the Joe Biden bandwagon. In fact, we're all going to unite around him. We're going to say this is nonsense. Okay, well, now if you do that, Trump now has this issue that he's going to beat like a drum from now until November 2020. And like I said, I think Michael Graham wrote a column and he asked me a little bit and I have a quote or two in his column uh, from this morning. People generally liked Joe Biden for a very long time. Ah, you know, good old whack, America's wacky neighbor, the crazy uncle, making the faces behind Obama, Mr. Amtrak, yada, yada, yada. People didn't really know about Hunter Biden until a couple of months ago. I mean, they may have heard it here and there, and uh, you know, the timeline was meant to point out that these stories have been around for a long time. But this is the first time you've really seen the spotlight on it, and it really does look unsavory the way his family has attempted to cash in on their connection. If you want to say, oh, what about Jared Kushner? Yeah, okay, you can say the same thing about the Trump kids. But ultimately, if you're the Democrats, you want to make as big a contrast with Trump as possible. And you don't want Trump being able to say, what about his dirty deals? What about his dirty deals? And stuff like that. So I think the Democrats really face a genuine dilemma here. Um, I think most people, if, if everything before didn't shake out of Biden, you're probably not leaving now. Um, or at least you probably still think he's the best option. On the other hand, you know, maybe at some point one of these things turns into the straw that breaks the camel's back and uh, Democrats start looking at everybody else. And I'm sure there are a whole bunch of people named, you know, Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar and Julian Castro and everybody else who are like, hey, let's look at the other options, Democrats. <laughs> let's not close that door too quickly. We still got a little bit of time. Yeah, good luck to them on that. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> but hey, they're on the debate stage. I'm sure that'll make all the difference this month. Ah, okay, so here's the you have 12 people on that stage, Greg. 12 people. Way to go. Could have done two nights of six people. Could have had nice leisurely answers. Long. Nope, nope. 12 people on stage. The DNC is a bunch of idiots. <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> yeah, this is a new innovative way of being an idiot. <laughs> people gripe about the debates. And one of the, you know, again, if you're listening to this, there's a chance you haven't watched them. Maybe you have. Maybe you turned it off when it gets boring after 20 minutes or 10 or two. <laughs> um, but you're like, you know, for those of us who have to watch the whole thing, I, I'd like to see probably the best debate you can have, right? The, the most, uh, the best substance, um, the most, in, you know, clearest contrast between the candidates where they really differ. Um, I get tired every time, you know. Uh, you know, Chuck, let me tell you about Eduardo, who I met in Des Moines, you know, and you know, the guy, I, this is an anecdote of a person that is sad. This means people should vote for me. The debates could be so much better. And I think the problem is you know, it's hard to have a good debate with 10 people up on stage. I'd also get rid of the debate audience. That's another story. But the point is, you know, with six people, you could get a really good debate and they're choosing not to do it. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We're glad you're here today as well. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a nice review, and join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.